new. Father, we ask for your blessing of, uh, on this time of study, Lord. Um, not only is it a time of study, Father, but Lord, may we recognize that you are speaking to us. Lord, it's not just an intellectual exercise, Father. It's much more than that. Lord, for that is what the Athenians practiced. Lord, they were used to doing this day in and day out. They would spend all of their time studying these different philosophies, ideas, perspectives, opinions of others, testing them out. And, and Lord, even though they increased in knowledge, they were still far from you. Again, I pray that that would not be the case with us. Lord, that we would not look at the study of Scripture as simply an intellectual exercise, an accumulation of information, because that puffs up. So I pray, Father, that we would once again sit before you, our Lord and our God, that we would be mindful of who is speaking to us. Lord, I simply ask that I would be your mouthpiece and that you would do the speaking. So we thank you for this moment. Maybe, may we be attentive to what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, again, Paul had arrived in Berea, or had arrived in Athens, which was about 314 miles south of Berea. Again, Athens is known as the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire in that day. Paul was about to come in contact with these curious Athenians. These are cultured, intellectual philosophers, and it was well known for this throughout the, the world. Last week, we learned about a Christian man by the name of Paul who was provoked to witness being spiritually infuriated by the idolatry and the immorality that he found in Athens. And we know that by this, Paul was moved to witness to the Jews in the synagogue, the people who were religious or seekers wherever he went. And he also shared the gospel, proclaimed the gospel to the local Greeks at the Agora or the marketplace. And it was during this time of Paul's witnessing that he caught the attention of some local philosophers, some Stoics and Epicureans. And they were curious to hear what Paul had to say and invited him to join them on Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, a place where philosophers gathered to hear and discuss the multitude of philosophical ideas. It was both a hill, and it was also a court. A person, any single, any one of us, can get wrapped up with a discussion of these philosophical ideas. You can study philosophy for the rest of your life. The person, the person himself getting curious about the things of the world and saying it's for the purpose of being a more effective witness to the lost. And, and I believe it is important. You know, uh, some are against higher education for whatever reason. I'm not against higher education. I think the more education you have, the better you, you, it is that you can be prepared because you have a deeper understanding of how people think and where they are in their lives. I believe that we ought to be lifelong students. You know, I remember years ago, um, just maybe about 10 years ago when I graduated from high school, that, 
maybe 12. Okay, so 12 years ago. And I remember saying this. I, I, I remember thinking, I, it, like, I don't even know if I was holding a book in my hand, but, but I, I thought, you know what, this is the last time I'll ever have to read a book in my life. Boy, God had a whole different plan for my life. Now I can't put the book down any day uh, of the week. But, you know, then I grew up. Then I understood that education is very important. But for us as Christians, it should serve something much more than how the world sees it. Uh, We should always be learning, growing in the Lord, not to be puffed up with knowledge, but so that the Lord could use it to glorify himself in and through us. That we would be able to connect with others in a way that, uh, you know, the bridges could be built and, and we could therefore be trusted enough to present the gospel to one another. Now, the world can be lost in all of this that we're going to look at this morning and what we just read in these few verses. But we also ought to note that Paul did not explain to them as he interacted with them the fine details of their philosophical ideas and where they are deficient, but rather mentioned simply a couple of things that they would be familiar with and used that to lead into the testimony of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Sometimes we get into these arguments with people. You know, that is not what the Lord has called us to do. We are not there to win an argument. We are there to win a soul to the Lord, to lead them to salvation. Some of us, sometimes we think, man, we're there just to win a conversation, whether it be with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or whoever else is before you. We're not there for that purpose. And I remind you all, all that Paul had encountered all of these things during his second missionary journey for you to note and personally aspire to be prepared for any situation that you're faced with. Uh, People that God divinely brings you in contact with for the sake of the gospel. Remember how it is that he interacted with the Jews in the synagogue. How it is that he interacted with the God-fearing Greeks out and about in town. And how it is as we look this evening, this morning, at how he interacted with the philosophers in Athens. So, provoked to witness is what we looked at last week. We're just going to touch on that briefly. Uh, Then he was approached by the curious, and then he addresses the philosopher. Uh, Provoked to witness, verses 16 and 17, we covered that last week, but Paul had arrived in Athens, and as he waited for Silas and Timothy to arrive, his spirit was provoked within him. And the reason his spirit was provoked was because the city was full of idols. And not just because the city was full of idols, because that would have been okay. That's what the world does. You know, what else would you expect? But I believe that Paul was infuriated because he had a sudden and violent feeling of opposition, of being personally attacked, because he is one with Christ. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. And his whole perspective is in glorifying him. What? And who opposes God opposes his people. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Do you feel this way? 
was the question that I asked last week. Or are you conveniently detached from Jesus when it comes to the things of the world? And we can do that. We can make ourselves, uh, we can justify our own positions and compromise by detaching ourselves from Jesus when it's convenient for us to not engage the immorality or the idolatry around us. I ask the question, what provokes you to anger? What moves you to witness? Do you ever feel compelled to confront something, ideas or people obviously opposed to God? Do you ever feel compelled? Sometimes we can feel compelled to say something and, and we don't. Uh, we, we've been in situations to where people have said things and I, you know, I put my head down because I'm thinking, Lord, is this what you want me to do? <laughs> you know? And then as more comes out, it's like, you've got to say something. And you just engage. You just, but I, I'm always looking for the right words to speak, you know? Because if I were to say something in the flesh, I would just uh, offend. I would just build the, the, the wall thicker and taller and wider, and uh, nothing would get accomplished. But, you know, anything can work out as the Spirit leads, right? But does anything provoke you to that same anger in which the Lord is provoked to for the same reasons? We took a look at what Paul did when his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city full of idols. He went into the local synagogue and reasoned with the Jews and with the God-fearing Greeks and with the people in the Agora or the famous marketplace and the hub of Athenian life. And we saw how Paul exercised discipline, personal discipline, reasoning with the people, making every effort to explain who Jesus was about his life, death, burial, and resurrection. We noted that Paul did not attack people, but he opposed their ideas by revealing the truth about who God is and his deliverance through Jesus Christ of sin and death by explaining to them that there is only one God and the way to him is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Paul was provoked to witness to the Jews, the God-fearing Greeks, and the people who were willing to listen to him in the marketplace, wherever he went. So provoked to witness. But as we move on, he was approached, because of these conversations that he was having, he was approached by the curious. You know, there are people in your lives that will come to you that are curious. You know, they see how it is that your words match your life. What you say is what you do. That's an anomaly. That is, that is not what happens in the world. He may say one thing and do another, and that's just what's expected. Deception, unfortunately, is commonplace in today's society. A, a facade um, to, uh, you know, really appear to be something that you're not. It, it's all acceptable today, and it's even <laughs> applauded. Depends on who you are, though. But he was approached by the curious, because when you are a man or a woman of integrity, spiritual integrity, at some point, someone is going to come up to you and ask you, 
as I asked my dear friend Mike, what's up with you? You're different. What do you know that I don't know? What, what do you have that no one else possesses? What is it? Approached by the curious. Verse 18, it says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoke philosophers also conversed with them, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they were, they were curious. They wanted to know more. Let me ask you this. What would you do if approached and invited to tell of your God and his salvation to a group of people or an individual? You know, um, tomorrow, Richard, uh, we invite you to come and speak. Um, we want to hear about your God and that salvation that you talk about. You know, the, the resurrection of who? Jesus. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, and where, he's from where? Nazareth. Interesting. We want to hear more about him. For any of you, if you were to be asked to do that very thing, would you be prepared? Would you be ready to give an explanation for the hope that lies within you? Would you be ready to give the gospel? You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Let us never forget that last portion too. Okay? Gentleness and respect. You know, <clears throat> the Bible, and as we go through it, it should be, this, this is a time, you know, you guys, you have exposed yourselves to being confronted this morning. Did you know that? You came here willingly, and, uh, and as you come and worship and sit here, you're not just, you're, you're not here to get a message uh, to feel warm and, and just like wonderful, like all the time. There is a part of the message that always should be a bit uncomfortable because it should be challenging. It should be a confrontation. Y'all didn't come here knowing everything, right? Because you, you, do you have all this figured out? None of us. The process of sanctification is a lifelong process until we go home to be with the Lord. So we're confronted this morning with these things. That's why I ask these questions to help you think a bit to help you, like, just, okay, Lord, you know, what do you have for me here? Am I prepared? If I were to be asked to give an answer for the hope that lies within me, am I ready? Am I prepared to give, a, like, an, an answer, uh, being, a, you know, simple and articulate and concise, you know, but being complete? Am I ready to do that right now? Let me ask you this. How long have you been a Christian and if you've been a Christian for more than, let's say, a month, why wouldn't you be prepared for something like this? After all, the Word tells us to be students of the Word, right? Not being ashamed, but knowing how to rightly divide, handle the Word of truth. Now, as Paul was speaking, though, never forget this. Because Paul was talking about Jesus Christ. He was talking about the God who died and resurrected from the grave, having personally stepped into the place of humanity's obligations 
and consequences of sin and paid for the sins of the people and all they have to do is believe in Jesus Christ for salvation? Because salvation belongs to God and it comes by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, of course, this is foreign to them. And this got the attention of the local philosophers, the Epicureans, especially in the Stoics. Let me explain to you who they are, though. Epicureans uh, believe that the meaning of life was about the pursuit of personal pleasure. I, I remember years ago uh, going to a, it was a festival. This was years ago. This is B.C., um, before Christ. Okay? And I went to something that was titled, and I thought it was cool. It was a cool title, right? It was like, hey, you're going to like this, this big event, and it's called the Epicurean Affair. It's like, whoa, that's awesome. And guess where it was? The, the center of everything that has to do with pleasure is known as a place that's not too far from here. Yeah, Vegas. Vegas, the Epicurean Affair. What a, what a fitting right, title for such an event. Again, this was, this was years ago, okay? It wasn't like the other day. And then as I got to know what the Epicurean philosophy was about life, it fit the description to a T. Because Epicureans believe that the meaning of life is all about the pursuit of personal pleasure, being void of pain, being void of any disturbances. That's why they're not superstitious. Because superstitions are, are, are a belief that lead to fear. Like always fearing something. Um, oh gosh, I mean we can go into superstitions. You know, doing, doing silly things after... You know, you, you know, don't iron with your hair wet, you know, things like that. That it's like, what does that have to do with anything? Um, you know, and, and so, so many others, you pray, shoot me a superstition. Black cats? Oh, did one cross you? Yeah. Have you ever walked under a ladder? You have? It's seven years of bad luck. Yeah. Oh, that's a broken mirror. We can go on and on. You know what that is? All those superstitions? Fear. Fear. Oh, I did that. Oh, now I got to do X, Y, Z to reverse that, you know. And um, Epicureans did, did not believe in any superstitions, uh, especially those, of course, that cause fear, which all of them do to some degree, including the fear of death. Didn't fear it. But they didn't believe in anything after death. It was just nihilism. They didn't believe in providence. They believed that this one life uh, is all one has, and there's nothing beyond it. Uh, they neither denied nor accepted the existence of gods nor their personal interactions with people. They believed that if God existed, then he or multiple gods, whatever it may be, had no interactions with man. They were basically indifferent toward man, the gods or God, whoever it is that you want to believe in. They're like, that's up to you, but for us, we don't believe in gods or God or whoever it is, whatever. They made every attempt to live a detached and tranquil life that was very 
self-centered. It was all about moi, right? Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheists, uh, and they did believe in divine providence because they believed that the spark of divinity, the logos, lived in everything and in everyone, and therefore the spark of divinity bound the entire cosmic order together. And so they believe that they ought to live their lives by reason because this would help them realize their fullest human potential. Paul had a working knowledge of these two forms of ideas, philosophical ideas. He had a good working knowledge of both the Epicureans and the Stoics, and he would later use a saying of a Stoic philosopher, or two actually, to lead into the creator of the universe, us as his creation, people, humanity, and God's desire and intent that we are knowledgeable of his gracious offer of salvation. I love that because this is where knowledge can be used to the glory of God. These little things that we come in contact with and we come to know and understand, um, whether we're in finance or we're in the medical field or wherever it is that we are in life, that we can use those types of analogies, those types of um, understandings or knowledge to help those people understand who God is, who we are, and what he requires of us to know salvation in a relationship with him. We can use all of that. That's exactly what Paul was doing. We need to pay attention to this and apply it ourselves. These are the two primary groups of, that, that Paul will address shortly at the Areopagus, as they are the ones who became curious and invited him to tell them more about what he was talking about, this Jesus and his resurrection, this salvation that you're speaking of. Now, this message is foreign to the world, though. And it should be foreign to the world. It shouldn't be something similar to what they already know. This should be absolutely foreign to the world. Paul's message was unlike anything that they had previously heard. It seemed like foolishness to them, even calling him a babbler. Now, that wasn't a nice word to use. You know, that was someone who, like, um, would just kind of pick at things without understanding. Uh, someone who uh, is scatterbrained. Someone who grabs a thought from here and a thought from there and, and then tries to explain something and the person who's listening to that person is like, do you have any clue what John just said? I, you know, it's like he's scatterbrained. I have no idea. What's the message that he's bringing across? That's how they looked at Paul. Like we have, no, what, Jesus, Jesus, he lived, but yet he died. And now he, he lives, um, not just his spirit and just everywhere, but as the person, he's a babbler. So it's foreign to them. They were thinking that he was speaking without having a personal understanding of what he was saying, having no depth of coherence at all. The Epicureans did not believe in any existence after death, and the Stokes believed that only the soul survives death. Paul was referring to the resurrection, saying he was a preacher of foreign divinities. Perhaps Paul was referring, they thought, to a new goddess named Resurrection. Without a clear understanding of Paul's monotheistic belief, he wasn't pantheistic. 
He's monotheistic. They were making him out to be a polytheist, much like themselves. As we, as we consider this, remember this. Athens is a reflection of the world that we live in. They try and relate what they believe to you. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, so um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, I believe in, you know, uh, the earth, wind, fire, the trees, all that. So kind of like that, you know, you have your belief, I have mine. No, no, no. No. Not even close to that. But that's what the world tries to do with us. You have to explain that it's not that. So Athens is a reflection of the world, and the world did not, nor does it, understand the resurrection. This is something that threw them for a loop. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we'll come back to 1 Corinthians 1 a little bit later. Now, because they did not understand what Paul was saying, they brought him to the Areopagus to explain this quote-unquote strange thing that he was speaking. These men would spend all their time telling and hearing and discussing these new philosophical ideas. That's what they gave themselves to. Now, the Areopagus, a little bit more background as far as just this whole scene. The Areopagus is, is an Athenian formal court. And the Apostle Paul was invited to testify of Jesus Christ by addressing those that would be considered to possess the highest intellect as they believed in the world. The Areopagus itself was both, as I said earlier, a hill and a court. Areopagus means hill of Eris. And Eris was the Greek god of war. Now, the Roman equivalent of this god was called Mars. Thus, we have Either the Areopagus or Mars Hill, same place. Depends on whether you're talking to a Roman or a Greek. You could use Mars Hill when you're speaking to a Roman or the Areopagus if you're speaking to a Greek. They will understand you. The hill was located below the Acropolis, which was a fortified part of the city, and above the Agora, which we addressed last week primarily, and that was the marketplace of the Athenians. So Paul was taken to the Areopagus to tell them about this new teaching. It was strange to them. According to Plato, Socrates was accused of introducing other new gods, and therefore he also had to testify in a trial much like the Apostle Paul was brought to and asked to testify of. And, uh, and so we have this before us. The Apostle Paul was, in a very official way, put on trial to testify of what he was speaking. This God that he was referring to, this God of the resurrection, who resurrected himself, the one who stepped into the place of man and died for man, he was testifying of Jesus Christ. But whether it's foreign to them or not, we also need to note that need to note that Paul's message never changed. He preached the resurrected Jesus, the Son of God who was crucified, having victory over our sins, and resurrected, having victory over the grave bodily. So he was provoked to witness. He was approached by the curious. And now he addresses the philosophers. 
Verse 22 says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by their art and imagination, uh, by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, this is all we have record of Paul saying. This was it. And Paul begins by addressing something that he had observed in the city of the people. He referred to them as being very religious. I've observed that you're, you're a very religious people. Now, to the world, this may have a very positive ring something acceptable and personally valuable. But rest assured that Paul was not saying it and meaning it in the positive sense. Uh, there was a reason why he brought this up. At the moment, you know, the person, as you do say something like that, may, may say, well, yeah, I, I, am, I am religious. I am a religious person. Paul was very religious at a certain point in his life. He was very religious. But in that, he was also very ignorant of God and the personal relationship that can only be known through grace, through his grace and faith in his one son, Jesus Christ. Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus and surrendered himself to the one and only God and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom one comes to the Father. For Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus confronted the Apostle Paul, Paul at the time, on the road to Damascus and told him exactly who he was. Well, with all the gods that Athenians worship, Paul took notice of the people, but also of his surroundings. And he took notice of this one altar. The altar to the unknown God. And he says, this is the God that I want to make you aware of. This is what Paul used to lead into and explain to them who this God was that they worshipped without knowledge. They said, I want, I want you to know that this no longer has to be a mystery. But it's going to be revealed to you right now. And Paul goes on to explain who God is and who God is not. God is the creator of the universe. The heavens and the earth 
and everything in it. God does not live in temples made by man. God is not served with the need, with, with these uh, hands and, and feet of man because he's not needy. He's not helpless nor needs the help of man. God is the giver of life and he's also the sustainer of life. God created man and from one man exists all men. And God set the world in motion and set in order all order that sustains life. And he was saying, all of this should lead man to seek God. All of this should be evidence that there is a creator. None of this has come to exist by chance. Order does not come from chaos. Chaos begets more chaos. It goes into further chaos. In, in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1 The psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Creation. Streams of a creator. Of a wonderful designer. Of all that we have before us. It is truly beautiful. You know, I have this, we have this um, waterfall that I built in the backyard. And um, if you look out of our bedroom, um, you, can, you can see the water and you can hear it. And um, this... I think it's, it's either a small hawk or a falcon that, that comes and, and bathes in, the, in the, the top pool of the waterfall. And it's just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And uh, in any movement that's in the bedroom, even though for us it's hard to see that, that bird, um, they can see us just like that, like as if we're right in front of, of, of them, of the bird. How the Lord designs these creatures is truly amazing. And yet he has not, he, it doesn't compare to how he made us in his image. For he says, let us make man in our image. Can you imagine that? God making us in his image. It's truly wonderful. But as you look at creation, you've got to know there is a God. And he's created it all. Oh, we can go on and on about creation, but... But uh, we know that that should lead us to a place to where we seek God and are searching, looking for ways to know who he is. It's described here as it should lead us to a place to where as they were doing, they were groping their way along in the darkness, trying to look for the doorway to where they understood and were open to who God is. Well, the Apostle Paul was about to open up that door for them. Because he said, he, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, our purpose. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Interesting. We are, we are his creation as well. It's because of creation that a person would feel their way toward God. And in these verses, 27 and 28, Paul wanted them to know that God was not far from them. He is near. 
Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And we need to note that it doesn't take a greater personal effort to find God, but rather an understanding of who he is and how we can be reconciled to him. This requires belief that we are alienated from him by our sin. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you know that God is not far from you? Do you believe this to be true? Now, Paul quoted a couple of Greek poets whom they were very familiar with. Epimenides, uh, 600, which uh, wrote about 600 B.C., and uh, he was a Cretan, and then Aratus, which uh, he wrote in about 310 B.C. So they wrote these things. They were very familiar with them. And Paul used their quote to build a bridge to bring his pagan audience to trusting him and understanding the gospel, the message of reconciliation, the message of Jesus Christ and salvation. Now, as we read here, verse 29 says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." And so he's telling them, hey, listen, you may have thought all of this before, but it's now time to come to the full knowledge of the one true God. God is not created in our image, nor should he be. God is greater than the created, and mankind is created in his image. Now that there is knowledge, it is time to confess him and repent from ignorance and sin. Why? And he warned them, in a very short few sentences. He warned them. It was very concise. The reason why is because judgment is coming, and you won't get a second try, a second chance. There's only one. Judgment is coming, and every man will have to give an account to God. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, with sin, but to save those who are eager, eagerly waited for him. So it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, period. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is a book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so it was that the Apostle Paul was saying, at this point, you have full knowledge, it's time to choose. His desire and God's desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what he was calling them to do, to repent, to turn. Turn from sin and turn to the Lord 
receiving forgiveness of their sins, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is telling them, knowing that there is a creator and we are his creation, our responsibility is to acknowledge who he is, turning from our own ways and efforts to know him and surrender to what he has prescribed with, with full knowledge, with full knowledge. You see, judgment will come. And everyone will be held accountable for what we decide to do with the knowledge that we have come to possess. There is no excuse for any single person. We are without excuse. Just as they were without excuse, all those who heard on the hill on that day, no one who's ever heard the gospel is without excuse. Or with excuse. They, they, they can't use an excuse to say, well, I, I didn't know. Or I didn't believe. Well, if you don't believe, then you remain in your condemnation. And that's the, that's the warning that we have. So the Apostle Paul was simple and to the point. Again, if you were approached by the curious, are you prepared to address them? And testify of who God is. And how to be saved, reconciled unto God. Because the Apostle Paul, as he was provoked to witness, he was approached by the curious, and he addressed the philosophers, but you could say those who were ignorant of salvation. And now he had presented them with hope. When you're presented with the gospel, you're presented with hope. When you present others with the gospel, you present them with hope. In verse 32 says, Now, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. So you had some who mocked, others who wanted to hear more, and still others who believed and followed. And so this is what we have. A picture of what happens today. Some mock and others believe. And some just want more information. They, they want to hear more. It, it's the same thing that happens today. Paul, listen to this. Paul was only there to proclaim and to explain who God is and how to know salvation. I know, I know there's, with certain people, there's a, they, a personal connection with them. There's family members. There's close friends. And we want so desperately for them to be saved. But in the end, you're called to be faithful. Tell them with gentleness and respect what salvation is and what it is not. How to know salvation. And let the Lord do what he desires to do and can do a much better job than you and I can by convincing them that this is true. Because to some it will be foolishness and to others it will be the power of God to salvation. Paul addressed the philosophers, but it's no different than anyone who is ignorant of who God is. Be prepared to answer anyone who asks for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And I'll close with this. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is what we'll boast in. We're going to boast in the power of the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and this is again in closing. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so we will, Lord. We will boast in you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for being so willing to send your son to die on the cross on our behalf. Lord, we confess our sins to you. It is our sins that separated us from the Father, and yet through the Son we are reconciled to him. I pray, Father, that, Lord, we would not boast of the intellect or anything that we have accumulated for ourselves. Uh, the only thing that we are to boast about is our relationship with you. The fact that you know us and we know you. And one, one day we will be in all of your glory. I thank you, Lord, for this time, for it has taught us, Lord, how it is. And perhaps, Lord, challenged us to be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that lies within us. Lord, that we would do that with, um, with gentleness and respect. Lord, that, but we ourselves, Lord, that, that we would be, Lord, students of your word. We would be always, Lord, uh, enjoying fellowship with you. That you may teach us and you may give us further understanding of how it is that we are to, Lord, explain these things to others. Help us to be wise according to the word of God. All to your glory, all to bless you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.